Hello, I'm Anjali Pereira. And I'm Katie Romero Finger. Welcome to Boss vs. Book. Boss vs. Book is essentially a book club for business leaders in podcast form. Together, Anjali and I are reading the best selling leadership books of our time in a bid to figure out whether their advice really leads to success. Oh yes, because not only will we be analyzing the text, we'll also be using the concepts we learn on our own real-life business and sharing our progress with you in real time. So join us for the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, from the practical challenges to the emotional quagmires. This is the ultimate test of whether business books actually work. Today we're reading part three of Simon Sinek's Start With Why. Hello to all you fellow bosses out there and thanks for coming to our book club meeting today. We are going to be doing things a bit differently this time and kick off with a business update because we promised you we'd keep you posted on our progress and a lot of things are happening at the moment. So the first thing to mention is that we were featured on another podcast. We were invited on by our friend and colleague Kizzy Nakwacha, who is the host of Kizzy's Friday Game Changers, as well as the publisher and editor of amazing business magazines like Business Game Changer and Media Republic. Kizzy's podcast is a unique radio-style podcast interviewing the world's most innovative business game changers. His mission? To lay bare the secrets of starting and running a successful game-changing business. So Katie and I were, of course, very excited to be interviewed. Check out the episode, it aired on February 27th. We talk about Sincera and launching Boss vs. Book. And we also did this quite surreal but interesting exercise where we went back and forward in time. Um, it's worth a listen, so search for Kizzy's Friday Game Changers on your favourite podcast platform, um, and we'll stick a link in the show notes as well. That's right. We also want to give you a more personal update. A lot of you guys out there can probably identify with the struggle of those early days when you're trying to balance putting enough of yourself into your business while you're also trying to support yourself and your family. It's oftentimes difficult and stressful, but people don't always talk about the reality of it and how it really impacts your personal life. So we want to make sure that we do talk about it. Absolutely. So Katie, do you want to go first and tell people about your new course? Sure. So I am about to start a new course. I have been following for a while a very interesting platform via Accenture in the UK called Super Mums. And it's an organization that they, that I, I believe if I'm kind of stating this correctly, that Accenture has put together via their Salesforce group. And it's to help women that have been, well, I think, I mean, I think it initially started to help professional women that had maybe been out of the workforce for a year or two that wanted to go back and find something that was intellectually and professionally challenging while also giving them flexibility and freedom of being a mother. And so they started this and Salesforce is growing enormously. And so this was just a good fit for them to find professional women that needed to maybe reskill or upskill or even just um, grow their skills and move into a Salesforce role. So you do the course and then they help you through their recruitment program to find some positioning positions. So I am effectively going to become Salesforce marketing certified, which Angeli and I discussed and thought that it's not only something that will give us as a platform, as a company, some a bit, bit of a leg up. So we, be able, we will be able to offer our clients more 
in terms of services. And it's also a part of me that I always like to learn. We talk a lot about learning. And it's a it's a different part of marketing that I haven't delved into. So I'm excited to learn a bit about it. And then it will give us and me some freedom to maybe take on a couple projects here or there while Sincera is really coming of age. Mm. So I'm excited. That starts this this week. And we'll keep you updated on how I like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for you. This This does sound like an amazing opportunity. I love that it's taking the fact that, you know, we are... You are a busy mum, you know, you, you mm-hmm. have a life, you have children to take care of and a life to manage. Um, and, you know, a, a lot, one of the difficulties with that is that it can limit you, it can um, hold you back in some ways, but in other ways, it gives you opportunities. Um, and I love that this this move is embracing the opportunity of being a mum rather than uh, the limitations of it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And... And it's, I think it is important to to have that, to take the pressure off us financially mm-hmm. and, you know, to, to be earning while we're setting Sensefera up. I mean, as for me, I've, I've spoken about my work as a mentor for disillusioned doctors who are thinking about changing career. And, you know, in the last year or so, a lot more doctors have been getting in touch with me, um, which is interesting because I started writing my blog about leaving medicine nearly five years ago now. So it's just really interesting to see the sheer length of time uh, between that content production is effectively what it is. Um, so yeah, the time between creating that and clients coming in, uh, that's interesting. So um, I'm taking calls in the early mornings and the evenings and at weekends too, and just trying to fit it around us and spare work and around childcare as well. Um, so it is tough, but I am incredibly lucky. I have such a supportive husband and I really love um, my mentorship work. It is so rewarding. And I do feel that um, it informs what I do with Sincevera as well in the same way that your course um, will inform you. So um, it is a constant juggle, but um, it's worth it, right, Katie? It is. I think uh, any new business entrepreneur or any, you know, someone that has just set up business knows that there's ups and downs to it. And when you're really passionate about it, you can't just let the downs get to you. So we are figuring out ways to make this work well for both us professionally and our families. And I think it's been really, really inspiring and helpful. Yeah. um, And it would also be great to know if any of you out there have experienced similar struggles in the early days of starting a business and and how you've dealt with them. So send us a voicemail or an email to bossversusbook at gmail.com. Okay. So let's get back to our book club meeting. Today, we're looking at part three of Start With Why which is titled Leaders Need a Following. Anjali, it is your turn this week to give us a summary of Simon Sinek's objectives. So what did you think? Yeah, so uh, in this part, basically Simon Sinek is talking about how great leaders get a team of people on board with their vision. Um, And there's a specific emphasis on hiring well, so finding uh, the right employees. Um, There's also a focus on trust. So he's saying that if people trust you, they will follow you. Um, He gives us lots of examples, including expanded versions of the stories in the introduction section, um, like Martin Luther King and the Wright brothers. He also talks about the influence of influencers and how they cause tipping points in the market. Um, And he talks about the law of diffusion of innovations as well, um, which is 
him talking about how to capture the mass market really. So his main objective in this part is I think to show us that having the right people on your side causes the market to work in your favor. Uh, what do you think? Would you agree with that objective? Yeah, and I think that this entire section could have been said in probably two pages. <laughs> I found it so repetitive, but yes, yeah. I think that's. I think your summary was pretty much, pretty much could have been the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. I mean, I I did quite enjoy this part, um, but it sounds like you did not. <laughs> no, I found myself. Uh, actually skimming over quite a bit and kind of just being like, get to the point. And, <laughs> and I have a lot of, I didn't actually take a lot of notes, but I have a lot of kind of mental thoughts. But my biggest thing was through, through the whole piece was who is his buyer here? I mean, okay. Buyer might be the wrong word, but who is he really speaking to? Because it was, it felt so repetitive and so almost like, obviously I know this. I should mm. know this. Why, why is he, explaining it. I mean, I think he he just basically he says that when you inspire your employees or your people, they want to stay and they want to, you know, they stick around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That seems to me to be like super easy to understand. So, my question throughout it was kind of like who is he actually speaking to? Why would what type of person would really need to hear this? I don't know how long was the chapter. Like 20 I don't however many times he says it over 20 pages. And I thought that was really, it was really eye-opening to me. I mean, as, and I know we still have a bit more to go. We're probably about three quarters of the way through the book, but um, it did feel a bit like I'm starting to believe, and maybe my mind will change by the end of the book, that I almost enjoy Simon Sinek better in video and short bit form. Mm. I think when he gives those really interesting, like his golden circle uh, TED talk, like they're really powerful, but but in long form, and, and I think that might say something about what he's discussing. It's almost like it's quite simple. We all should be doing it, so let's just do it versus mm-hmm. do you really need to go into book form? But obviously there are people, I mean, there are businesses that fail. He gives the example of Continental Airlines in the book, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really good example. I was glad that he gave that just because it was something different than his usual kind of Wright Brothers and Mac and all that stuff, or mm-hmm. Apple. Um but in, but it was, it's, I feel like, I don't know. I just, I felt like the chapter, or the, or the, I don't think it's the chapter. It's the part fell really flat just because it's just, it just felt really repetitive and it felt, almost, he almost makes it a bit too simple. I think that business is more complex and yeah, it's about inspiring your people, but I think he boils it down to be almost too, like if we just all knew our why, then we would all be successful. And I'm, I'm not sure that is the best way to state it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, we've, we've said it. We're at risk of sounding repetitive on this podcast now because we keep talking about yeah. how repetitive this book is and how much he uses blanket statements. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I hear you. Um, I just, I think there are, I, I quite enjoyed it because I think there were some things that really resonated with me. Um, and I like. think partially, well, <laughs> partially because it brought to mind a lot of bad experiences I've had with really bad leaders, um, bad bosses who have been like the opposite of inspiring. Um, and 
it you you are right the stuff that he's talking about of how not to be a horrible boss um is it is really simple um but what struck me was that even though it's simple so many people get it so wrong you know mm-hmm. um but that's a better message mm-hmm. i i feel like that that i think is probably his point but i think it might be a stronger message if he Again, I think some of it is her, are his examples. I don't know what it is. I think there's something in it that it's it's like uh, we give you a little bit of a a teaser in the sense of what he uses for Continental. They were basically completely failing. Uh, they were completely in debt. They hadn't made money in years. They had a complete kind of company culture of shutting people out to the point that I think they had like security guards on the level like armed security people on the 25th floor or wherever, you know, the C-suite sat. I mean, it was just like a complete culture of, of lack of trust. And then they bring in a guy who basically takes that away, opens his door, says we're going to treat people better. Like, obviously, things are going to change. <laughs> if you go from that extreme to the next, things will change. I, I, I go back to this again is I really would love some examples of companies that are like, we feel like we know our why. We feel like we're trusting, but what are we missing? Mm-hmm. I think those are where it'd be really interesting to see what his perspective is. Mm, yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I wonder, though, if there's some historical context here. I mean, it was over 10 years ago now that this yeah. book was published. And I feel like in the last few years, we have started to have more conversations about the importance of treating your employees well. Um, and that's that's kind of more in the modern psyche, um, as it were, in the, in the zeitgeist. So I wonder if at the time this this was quite um, quite a new idea, perhaps. Right. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, also he talks a lot about hiring. And in that same context, we are now having a lot more conversations about how we hire, what mm-hmm. type of questions we ask. We're not looking for just a list of qualities, rather someone that's going to culturally fit. So I think I think that's a good point is that you have to kind of take it into it's into context of the time that it was written and why I mean um, and why maybe it's not hitting the right nerve with me now, just because mm-hmm. we're we're in a different age of business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I was so reminded. I mean, he says. Um, Herb Kelleher, the head of Southwest for 20 years, as he's talking about Southwest Airlines again, was considered a heretic for positing the notion that it is a company's responsibility to look after the employees first. Happy employees ensure happy customers, he said. Now, this is such a simple idea. Um, And he also goes on to say, and happy customers ensure happy shareholders in that order. Um, and it is it is so simplistic, but it really struck home with me because coming from the NHS, coming from a culture that belittles, stomps on and takes advantage of its employees and treats them, frankly, like shit and then expects patient care to be absolutely wonderful. Um, it just it it really rang a chord with me because I, I hate that culture. It's one of the things that drove me out of the NHS. Um, it's, it's one of the things that I hear day in, day out in my practice as a mentor, that people are still being treated as if they weren't even human. Um, and, you know, the horror stories that I hear, Katie, like people being denied leave to go to their own wedding, you know, people not having the time to, to take a pee or to have a drink, um, 
people being being shouted at for being basically for you know for for wanting to do things that are not just uh, not just social rights but human rights um Mm -hmm. and and just this idea that there is such a simple way of looking at it and yet if you get it wrong it has such overarching effects and such negative reverberations around i mean the nhs is the biggest employer in europe um, and, and that is the culture that is within it. So that is why uh, it struck home with me. Yeah, I think that's a good point, too, because as some of you, I think we have mentioned, I live in Spain. I'm American, obviously, I live in Spain for the last uh, 12 years almost. And but we primarily work, obviously, in the UK. And so I've had my fair share of experience with Spanish culture, obviously, and Spanish professional culture. And I would probably agree that the, the, the companies. Now, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but the ones I've had, I've been able to have personal experiences with, have very similar cultures as well. I mean, it's very much about, it's very hierarchical. It's very much about the, the whole notion of mission is, is, is literally just a statement that's put on a wall but not lived. Um, there's very little, I mean, I remember a project I worked on like two years ago for about three months. And it was, I mean, the turnover rate of the the company was horrendous and instead of taking the CEO saying okay clearly something's happening here it was just a complete culture of guilt of not guilt sorry of um, blame and sense of you know well it's their fault they just want more money so they're going to the competition for more money instead of saying well maybe they would stay or they stayed for two years so they were trying to live it out maybe there's a real lack of purpose here or connection to your mission and a lot of people do stick around for less money when they feel really bound to that mission. So, I mean, I can see how it might have to be repeated over and <laughs> over again for certain people to really get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe that's just a really sad reflection on what business is still is today. I mean, if we're talking about the NHS, if we're talking about certain businesses, and this company I'm talking about was considered to be in the innovative space. Mm-hmm. So it's even more depressing. But it is really funny. I mean, at the very, very beginning of the chapter, he makes a point here and says, um, once we get profitable again, the logic went, then we, will make, then we will take a look at everything else. And without a doubt, throughout the 1980s and 1990s, Continental continued to struggle. And I think that that reminded me of another project that we've worked on, and that was in the UK, where, and, and I'm not saying anything that that was that this was, you know, a toxic environment company, but there is that notion of like, let's look at the numbers before we look at the other issues. When in mm-hmm. fact, maybe if we went to the other issues, the numbers would, you know, there would be we'd see the correlation why the numbers aren't going well. It's the wrong way around, basically. Right, mm. right. I think. I mean, he makes a valid point. Obviously, I just felt, and maybe now in reflection, it's just kind of more sadness that we have to hammer these points home because people still mm. don't get that when you make human beings feel like human beings and connected to something at an emotional level, they want to do well for others. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I think it's so easy to, to say something that sounds a bit like that, but actually does the complete opposite. So I'll give Mm -hmm. you an example. So in the NHS, people bang on and on and on about patient care you know the patient comes first we do everything for the patient that sounds brilliant that's what everybody wants to hear it's what patients want to hear it's what investors managers whoever like it sounds like the perfect thing to say oh yeah yeah we care about the patients 
And it doesn't really matter if you say we care about our staff. But Mm -hmm. the reality of it is that if you have doctors, nurses, physios, whatever, if you have professionals who are burnt out, anxious, depressed, lost in their life, you know, these are the people who are providing the care for the patients. So how on earth is patient care going to benefit if the NHS creates such a toxic culture for its employees? I mean, I'm not for a second saying that... um, that healthcare professionals don't care and they don't put everything they have into their jobs. Very often, a lot of them do put everything they have into their work. I mean, these are caring um, and often very loyal people. And sadly, that's sort of part of the problem. I mean, the NHS functions on the goodwill of its employees and um, it's, it's easy to take advantage of people when they really love their work and they really do care about the patients they, they have. Um, I mean, one of the really difficult things that has been introduced in the last few years in the NHS, and it's kind of a bullshit way of addressing the culture problem, is this idea of resilience. So we have resilience training now uh, for healthcare professionals. And it frustrates the hell out of me because basically what it's saying is that you are in a culture that is systemically abusing you. This training will help you to put up with it. Learn to deal with crap. (laughs) It's just, it's it's unbelievably wrong in my mind. In in my view, if you look after the employees, if you look after the doctors, the nurses, the physios, the HCAs, whoever, if you look after them, then patient care would just be through the roof. Honestly, we we talk about culture moving downwards through an Mm organisation and it applies just as much uh, in the healthcare setting. Yeah, I mean, if you thought about it, like what a powerful statement it would be if it said, our doctors and nurses come first, because with happy doctors and nurses, we have happy patients. You know, I mean, like mm. when you, th- I mean, that would be, obviously that's the case. I mean, we have NHS in Spain too, with socialized medicine, socialized medicine, excuse me. And I know that there's been a lot of criticism that you have, I think it's seven minutes to see a patient or something. A GP has only seven minutes to see a patient. And there's been stories of, they're so busy because in America you always have a nurse that does triage before so that the doctor comes in knowing the case. And here, which is probably similar to the NHS, you, the doctor does everything. And so by the time there's cases where they've stories where they've said, by the time the doctor is done typing in what the patient has said and looked up, you know, the guy's talking about, well, I have this thing on my head that hurts, whatever. And like when he looks at the patient, he's got like a tumor coming out of his head type of thing. <laughs> where if he had just looked up, you know, but they're just so trying to get through the, the quick, what's wrong with you? Let me write it down. Let me get it. In the, yeah. So there's no consideration to what that does for the clinician. And I think that's the same for, if you think about any position, even from a doctor down to McDonald's worker, if mm. there's no, if there's no, if you're not thinking about your workers or your employees, then why would you want them to be passionate about anything they did, mm-hmm. you know? Because it's clear just about your bottom line. I mean, I thought about, in the book he mentions his children and kind of saying our children are our biggest project, so to speak, in our lives. And it made me think about teachers because my children go to a British school here. And I have, you know, my days with it because I, I don't agree with certain things. I'm a pretty liberal parent. And, but when you hit contact with some of the teachers and it's, it's frustrating because you're frustrated with the school, 
But then you sit down with the teachers, and they're just amazing people. And I always, from my business mind, go back to, if they could just give these teachers some more power over their job, their position, their everything, Mm -hmm. this school could be amazing. And I think that's the same in any business. Give people a bit of ownership. Yeah. I think that really connects with what he says a little bit later um, when he's talking about hiring. So he says, great companies don't hire skilled people and motivate them. They hire already motivated people and inspire them. And he talks a lot about this um, in, in this chapter. He talks about how hiring people isn't just about finding someone who has the skill set, you know, has has a perfect CV, has a list of of things that uh, that you can a checklist almost of skills mm-hmm. um, that you can just tick off. He says simply hiring people with a solid resume or a great work work ethic does not guarantee success. Uh, the best engineer at Apple, for example, would most likely be miserable if he worked at Microsoft. Um, so that's really interesting. So he's talking about the need that there is a, a kind of deeper level to hiring than just that list, which I think is a point in itself. Mm-hmm. But also pointing to what you just said. It's this idea of letting them do their job once you've hired them. You know, hire great people by all means, but then listen to them, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Jobs said that as much as I hate to have to give that. <laughs> Jobs said something like that. Like, why would I hire something like, why would I hire really smart people and then tell them what to do type of thing? Mm-hmm. And I think it's so true. I think it's so funny, though, because I think, especially I'm listening to the We Work, or it's called We, we Crash podcast. And one of the guys from the one of the analysts um, that's on the podcast from the very beginning of the WeWork kind of boom was very very critical. And at the time when he was critical, people were then critical of him, kind of for being a sourpuss and saying, "Oh, he doesn't see a unicorn when it's in front of him," mm. when in fact his predictions were a hundred percent true. And he refers to startups and companies that have this very wishy washy, just talk about you know hiring diff- all this stuff as yogaology, I think he calls it. Because <laughs> okay. he, he calls, you know, he's like, okay, well, but what do you do? Mm-hmm. I think, so that's like, for me, there's that, that you have to find that balance. Okay, mm-hmm. so you say you're going to hire different, but A, do you? Do you just say it, but then really look for the MBA from Harvard and, you know, mm-hmm. or do you look for someone that is super, super interesting, but might not have the university or might not have the cachet of, positions behind them or do you just kind of like decide to to have this really wishy-washy concept of what you guys do and then hire more wishy-washy people so I think it's like you can really be you really have to get it right yeah but I agree with you I mean I think we've worked on different projects where that's absolutely been the case where people bring you in because of what you know but then they're like well but let's do it this way Mm. yeah and why why did you hire us yeah, exactly. I, I, I had a, a client a few years back who was exactly like that. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure looking back now that he had some kind of personality disorder, um, <laughs> but he would he would employ these brilliant people. We have this great team beneath him, really enthusiastic, really knowledgeable. They gel together really well. You know, they had um, they, you know, they were always coming up with new ideas together and, and making it happen and supporting each other. They had all the ingredients of a great company. Um but the level of micromanagement from this guy was was just something else, you know. Everything that the worst I think was that everything that the team would say um, and that I would say too, he would agree to uh, initially and say, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. But 
it was a facade, a, a game, really. Mm-hmm. He would say yes, and then a few weeks later, he would backtrack on everything and criticise everything and break it down and pull it back until it was basically what he said in the first place, you know. Um, and it's so demoralising when leaders are like that and you do just stop caring at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was definitely the case for the project, uh, this innovative project that we were on two years ago. It's like you get to the point where you're like, look, okay, so just give me a list of things you want me to do. Let me do them and let me go home. Let me, it's, it's, you know, let mm-hmm. me get my time card stamped and be done. Mm-hmm. And it, what's crazy is a lot of those companies, like Continent, the Continental example, are really failing. So you would think that they would want ideas to get them mm-hmm. out of that that failure yet it's almost like don't change anything yeah. because then it'll be worse and you think well maybe we should change something because we're losing a lot of money <laughs> well maybe that's the key I mean the key thing that needs to change is leadership mm-hmm. and that would involve the leader admitting fault yeah. you know, it, would, it would mean them saying that what I've done so far has not worked and I've done it wrong and I need to change mm-hmm. and for, I think as a, as a human thing to do, that is really difficult. Um, and certain types of people find that a lot more difficult than others, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get frustrated when people say, well, you just can't find talented people or you just can't find people that are wanted, you know, that want to be part of the team or you just can't find. And I just don't believe that. I think inherently mm-hmm. as human beings, which he, which Cynic also says, is we want to connect at an emotional level. We want to be part of something. So mm-hmm. the fact that you can't find people that way is really a reflection of you yeah, more than a reflection of them. Absolutely. I mean, I really love uh, in the latter part of this part of the book where Cynic talks a bit more about Martin Luther King. Um, and I've, I've heard him say this in speeches before, but I love the way that he talks about the people that turned up to hear Dr. King speak. Um, he asked the question, how many of those people turned up for Dr. King? Zero. None of those people turned up for him. They turned up for themselves because what King proposed was their idea of what society should look like, their idea of how America should be. Mm-hmm. If it was just about King's ideas, then it wouldn't resonate with anyone. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, 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 when something resonates with you, it becomes your idea. You take on, we talked about it before, you're, you're taking on that conviction for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that Cynic says, what all great leaders have in common is the ability to find good fits to join their organizations, those who believe what they believe. Yeah. When you, I mean, what's amazing about King, and I think he's a really good example, and obviously he was an amazing human being, is, and the, but, but it's true is that obviously it was a moment in history where it, that needed, that rhetoric needed to be spoken. But what he often spoke about wasn't about, I mean, he did speak about segregation and what Sinek points out, and it's true, is so much of what he speaks about is the human being Mm -hmm. and just what inherently every human being deserves. Mm -hmm. So it's not about black or white. And in that moment, it was. That's what the the fight was about. But what his rhetoric and what his underlying why was is that we all deserve as human beings, no matter the color of our skin, um, our creed, whatever, to just be treated as as respectfully as possible and equal. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an interesting statement because if his why was to desegregate or to, if he went down that path, I don't, obviously it would not be the same 
mm-hmm. type of powerful statement as it is when you just, you take it to its core mm-hmm. and you say, no, it's about people. Yeah. And I think that that's a really, a really good point that Cynic makes is that your why has to be something that people can grab onto no matter their kind of background. Mm-hmm. Because I, people of color grabbed onto that mission and people of different religions grabbed onto that mission. People, white people grabbed onto that mission because everyone at some point in their life, it's in some way could identify with that. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's his point is that your core, what we referred to in our work as your vision sphere has to be something that everyone can grab onto. Hmm. So in this part, Cynic shares a lot of stories uh, about great leaders who he thinks created a lot of trust because uh, he talks about the importance of trust when it comes to um, getting the people that you hire behind you. He talks about the adventurer Ernest Shackleton and his exploration of the Antarctic. And what I really love about this story was that it went so wrong. You know, everything kind of went to pot with this. They were stranded in the ice. Uh, their their ship got crushed and sank. They they spent months lost, basically. Um, and it was just a really hazardous journey. And what was amazing was that none of these people died. That all of the crew came back alive. And then we look at the job ad that Shackleton posted um, in the newspaper um, for this journey. And he said, men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, (laughs) doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. I just thought this was brilliant. And it's just, it's so honest. It's so honest. And so clear on what the realities of this are actually going to be like. I mean, Mm -hmm. you so rarely see employers who have the guts to do this, right? To to be this honest about what a job is actually like. Yeah, I think, did you see it? I think it was maybe last year sometime, Basecamp, which is, you know, the project management software that has basically been 100% remote and been never had any sort of VC money, I don't think. And they've kind of like, managed themselves they've been a small little ship basically for a long time and done really really well and they Mm -hmm. have never had a marketing person they've never really invested in marketing yet they're just they definitely have a solid why they get themselves and they they don't need anything else Mm -hmm. but I think it was last year they finally said we need someone for marketing like we can't bootstrap any longer and they (laughs) and the CEO published the job description and for anyone out there I highly recommend you go because he published it on his LinkedIn. And if you go and find Basecamp CEO, I can't remember his name right now, and look at it. And I think it was shared over, I don't even want to, I can't even remember, but for something like 50,000 times was something ridiculous. <laughs> and everyone hailing more than saying, I want to work for them or work, I want this job. Everyone just hailing how amazing the job description was. Because it was so real. Mm. Obviously, if you're putting an ad out for a marketing director, everyone knows what you need to know. But mm-hmm. it, so it didn't talk anything about the marketing. It just talked about what they're looking for as a person. That's amazing. And how you will fit in. And I think it was so funny because the reaction was like so viral in the sense of this is how every job description should be. So everyone recognizes that, yet everyone continues to do the traditional <laughs> job description. I mean, you could... <laughs> go on LinkedIn and do that easy apply to like 50 jobs in 10 minutes without even reading the description. 
by just looking at the title because you know what they're going to ask for. Yeah, it's so obvious. I, I think th this problem becomes even more exaggerated when we palm off hiring and and job descriptions on you know HR or recruitment mm -hmm. agencies and the people who are actually looking for the person who actually will be working with this person aren't perhaps directly involved or maybe only slightly involved in right in the search um which which is a it's a difficulty because obviously you know it, hiring takes up a lot of time and it can be very taxing uh, on on the person who's in charge of it so I can understand why time-saving measures become so popular but mm. at the same time I mean those people if, if you were to give your job to a recruitment agency, those people are being paid to find you um, a person for that job. So of course they're going to big it up. Of course they're going to talk um, positively about it and, and say, you know, this, this is so great. And it, it maybe even lie. And we know what recruitment <laughs> agencies are like sometimes, not all of them, some of them, um, but maybe even lie to, to sell that job to a candidate. Um, right. We had a project for a recruitment company, right? And um, mm -hmm. I think that what, what, they were great. They were great. And one of the things that they prided themselves on was the fact that I think that their their placements lasted longer, or there was some there was mm -hmm. some number in there that was really really important and that differentiated differentiated them from the competitor. And so we used to say, I think part of what we talked about was that they spent more time at the front end really getting to know and understanding the human behind the people they were, you know, that they were recruiting. And that would mean at the, the back end, that person would be a more valuable asset to them. Yeah, I, I was so inspired by the way that that recruitment company operated. I have never met um, people in the recruitment industry that, that behave that way. And it was just so refreshing and incredible to see what they were doing. I mean, that one of the most inspiring stories that really stood out to me was one of the consultants, recruitment consultants saying that they were looking for this really analytical job, a lot of sort of data analytics involved. And they didn't go down the traditional route just looking for a data analyst to fill it. They found a poker player, um, a guy who was, who was really, really good at poker, but had zero experience in data analytics, but had that kind of brain, had that kind of mindset. Um, and also it was, you know, a good, a good cultural fit for the, for the company. Um, it just, I mean, that, 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 that placement went really, really well. They, they told me that the, the guy, the poker player loved the job and the company loved him. Um, and I think the reason that it fits so well for those two is that there was an element of lateral thinking there. It wasn't just bunging in, you know, some guy with a lot of data analytics experience into a data analytics job. Right. There was a much deeper understanding of, as you say, the human being behind there. Um, I think it really ties into what Cynic says um, when he says, when employees belong, they will guarantee your success and they mm. won't be working hard and looking for innovative solutions for you. They will be doing it for themselves. And I love that. Yeah, that was a great story. So Casey, was there anything else in the text that stood out to you? There was one other thing here. Um, he talks a lot about influencers, which I think is so funny because obviously, again, this book is old <laughs> because he talks a lot about how we're influenced by influencers. And he talks, you know, he gives the the comparison of famous people and all that stuff. And it's funny because we are now in a completely influencer world. And I wondered what you thought. My feeling was I definitely, we were actually just talking about this before we started recording is Instagram 
I don't follow any people mm-hmm. that I know on Instagram because I use it as my online magazine. So it's things I'm interested in. If it's, you know, food, cooking mm-hmm. stuff, or if it's uh, lifestyle stuff, I, I just, I like it being kind of my place to consume things that I want to know the new and up and coming. And that happens to be influencers. And I do find myself, mm-hmm. especially for as a woman for like skincare products and stuff, completely influenced you know and a lot of times my favorite line is I'm not just saying this because I'm being paid when you're like clearly you are because that's how you make your money (laughs) but it works and I think it's so funny because it works more so than Cindy Crawford and you know the famous Pepsi ad because there are people they're you and me Mm. they're not you know they're easy relatable they have kids some of them you know this is their job and they're balancing a couple things in life so it's true Hmm. okay that's interesting so Sinek talks about um in this part he talks about the diffusion of innovations uh, and he talks about this model um there's a diagram in the text uh and he says our population is broken into five segments that fall across a bell curve innovators early adopters early majority late majority and laggards and so the innovators, obviously, are the people who create new things. The early adopters are the people who are willing to try new things, even if the product isn't perfect. And then the early majority, that's when this concept of the tipping point starts to occur, where the, the market, the mass market starts to embrace this concept, whatever the concept is. So I'm wondering, when it comes to your skincare, where do you fall on this curve? Are you... Would you say you're an early adopter, early majority? Mm. Where am I on the curve? I'm just asking because what's interesting to me is later on he says that different people can be different parts of the bell curve depending on the, the product or service being offered. I would say I'm like an early adopter. And I would think you? It's, yeah, and I think it's because I like kind of the changing science behind it. Mm-hmm. And, and talking about that, that curve thing, I thought that we, so he says something and a little after that, and he says, if you have the discipline to focus on the early adopters, the majority will come along eventually, but it must start with why. Simply focusing on so-called influencers is not enough. And that made, us think, that made me think of us mm-hmm. and our model a bit and like, are we where do where do the people that will that we work with come fall into? And I would almost argue that we will do better. I mean, what he basically mm-hmm. says is stop going towards the middle, stop going after the early majority and late majority, and really focus on those early adopters because those are the ones that are going to stay and push you, yeah, push other people, you know, influence other people. And I think that that is for us a hundred percent true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I th- I think this concept, I like this concept because for me, it explains something that we talk about in marketing a lot, which is the importance of targeting. Everybody talks about defining your niche, defining a really specific buyer persona to the point where, you know, you're describing what this pers- person might look like and, and what their job is and, you know, how much they earn, their family life, what they do day to day. It's going into a great deal of detail. And I think a lot of the pushback that we get uh, from clients is, you know, why, why are we going into so much detail? But this, for me, explains why you need to do that. 
because you are going after such a small mm. subsection of society. The early adopters are only 13.5%, according to the spell curve. Um, yeah. of of the people that you will market to. So those are the people that you need to capture and they are the people who will allow you to move into that bigger part of the bell curve and capture the mass market. And I think the mistake that so many clients of, of ours make is this belief that our product is for everybody. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to limit it. They don't want to say, oh, mm. you know, this product is only for certain people because then that will block other people out. It's too exclusive. You know, it, it will, will alienate certain, certain parts, uh, certain members. Um, and, and so it seems so counterintuitive to be that targeted. Um, but really, it's that it's that concept of if you stand for everything, you stand for nothing, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I think that that's interesting. I think um, that he then goes on when you're talking, you know, you're kind of talking about what you stand for and why that's important. Reiterating once again, as he does in this in this <laughs> part, he goes on to give the example of TiVo. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. So Did you have TiVo? No. Oh, it's so funny. It's funny that we it's in this. And that it's the example he gives because my dad and stepmom had TiVo and I would call them, if there was another category that you could add to the far right here after laggards, that's where they would be for any form of technology. <laughs> so it just was hilarious to me that, that it's considered like this innovative thing that people, the only ones that really jumped on were the ones that got it when it's like, I mean, I, my stepmom is a doctor, so she's a very intelligent woman, mm -hmm. has just, I think in the last two years, gone from, which was another example he gave in here, from an analog phone, mobile <laughs> phone, to a touchscreen, and only because the company basically said, no one will, no, like no platform supports oh analog anymore. Like you must use. And so the phone she has is absolute crap. Do you know what like that is? Can't. My father-in-law is exactly the same. That is so funny. <laughs> it's so fun. And she basically retired a bit earlier when she was just done and she's young because of the fact that the digitalization of records medical records was coming and she was just so terrified of what that oh meant my God. i mean that's wow that's how anti-tech she is <laughs> and she had tivo so um, i'm wondering it makes me want to call her and say who sold you tivo how did you get it because mm. i remember you know in high school or whenever it came out it it was like the coolest thing in the house. Oh, we have TiVo. We can like record whatever stuff that she watched, the Sopranos then or whatever. And so I think it's really funny. But what's, what's so funny about it also to me is the response from TiVo for why it didn't work. Mm. And she says, uh, Rebecca Baer, a spokesperson for TiVo, told the New York Times in 2000, they don't understand why they need this. And so he says, if this line of logic was true, then no new technology would ever take hold. I love that. And it's so true. I mean, it's we often talk about what we do is something that everybody needs and they don't know it. Mm -hmm. And but if we if that was our opening line, <laughs> most people probably would want to not buy it. Yeah, so. it sounds I mean, we don't we don't say that for that reason, right? It sounds right. really up yourself. Um, yeah, you're too thick to understand why we're important. <laughs> it's an awful you thing to us. say. Yes. <laughs> and that's basically what she's saying. I mean, I think it's just, 
it's really funny. It's and it's true. If you don't, it, this also then goes to show how good Cynic is at uh, advertising. Mm-hmm. Did you think that too? I mean, so he takes their. I think what was their, whatever they, they said here. Okay, something. Their pitch was something like, "We've got a new product. It pauses live TV, skips commercials, rewinds live TV." memorizes your viewing habits and records shows on your behalf without your needing to see it. Yeah. It sounds kind of boring. It's boring. It's like, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> I guess that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then he then says, what if it was, if the kind of person who likes to have a to- have total control of every aspect of your life, boy, do we have the product for you. And then he goes on and I'm thinking, my mind's thinking, is all of this, pl- like, is this whole book just, like, an advertising ploy? Because <laughs> he's really, he does it a couple times in the book. He's really good at it. Mm. I mean, he's really good at flipping what it should, you know, yeah. putting it into what it should say. Which, But does that give them a why? Or does that just give them really good copy? Well, I think the point he's trying to make is that you are starting... If you're starting with why, then you start the conversation with your why rather than everything else. So mm-hmm. I think a couple of chapters back, he gave this example of this guy called Brad who was um, yeah. asking someone out on a date. And um, and he, he was saying, like, Brad is talking about himself. And he basically sounds like a narcissist. Like, all he talks about is himself. But then he flips it and says, oh, I really love my life. I'm really lucky. I've got this amazing job that I'm so committed to. And it also allows me to have all of these really cool things in my life. And then suddenly he goes from sounding like a narcissist to sounding like someone who is really passionate and inspiring. And it's the Mm. same story. It's just told in a different order. And I think that's the point that he's trying to make. It's not that you have to come up with your why and then stop, right? Like you can't just have the why. And that's, I think that's why the golden circle has those three layers, the the why, Mm. the what and the how. You have to have all of the pieces. It's just that you have to do them in the right order. Right. Right. I think, I guess, my my kind of cynical thinking is thinking, is it just about really coming... So if we start the story differently, mm. is it really giving us a why or is it just a way of manipulating message? Mm. I mean, I think if you were just trying to manipulate message, it would fall flat anyway. Um, okay. I think the, the reason that it sounds, I think the reason it would sound compelling is if you really believed it, you know? Right. I think you can tell when someone's just trying to give you a sales spiel and they don't really care about what they're saying. <laughs> they, you know, they have no belief in the product they're trying and to what they're you. talking about. Yeah. But if you hook into that real, genuine passion, it, it is inspiring, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not something that you can fake... I mean, that's, I guess that's an arguable point. Perhaps you can fake it, but if you do fake it, then you end up being like WeWork perhaps, um, and eventually mm. it comes undone and you get revealed for who you really are. Right. Um, but if you really, really believe what you are saying and you live by that message, I think people can pick up on that. Yeah, and I think that what we talk a lot about with our clients is that it's not just, it isn't just copy and it isn't, just one mission statement Mm -hmm. it's something that's permeable throughout the entire organization exactly so Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I think it says if we're going back to TiVo it's even if they came up with that good copy 
would have switched anything Mm -hmm. if they didn't see the fact that what they were doing was changing your habits versus just giving you the ability to pause TV, Mm. you know, and then making that like an integral part of who they were. What's fascinating about the TiVo case is that they had everything going for them. I mean, Samson brought this up a few times, given a few examples of, of people who have had every practical and you know logically they shouldn't fail they, they have so much behind them they have lots of funding and their PR is great and you know their messaging is um well not messaging but uh, what am I trying to say yeah their their PR is great they have a great product um you know they they seem to have everything behind them I mean TiVo was part of the language uh, as well yeah. like to, to TiVo was a verb which I didn't realize um, yeah I remember that I TiVo'd it so yeah, yeah, you do it. So, and yet, despite being so ingrained in the culture, the product didn't take off. And there, there's got to be an explanation for that because logically, it doesn't make sense. I, we want to say that, we want to say that, but with all of that behind you, you should be able to take off. And yet, there was this obviously core critical bit missing. Yeah. Well, and I think that is it goes back to a bit of the Apple philosophy and ethos of not coming up with the product to introduce into the market, but rather coming up with the concept of a company and then Mm -hmm. develop products that fit into that concept. So Mm. again, if TiVo was to say, look, let's change the way people watch TV. Mm -hmm. Let's radically disrupt how people consume their TV time Mm. as opposed to saying, oh, we have this cool thing that you can pause TV with. Well, okay, that's cool. But what do you, you know? Yeah. What's your ethos? Exactly. One thing I'd just like to note before we move on to the next section is that in this part of the book, we meet Captain Laurie Robinson, uh, later General Laurie Robinson. And I just want to recognise that she is the first woman that we have met in this book. She is the first example that Sinek uses of a great leader who is also Mm -hmm. a woman. And I'm not sure if other women will come up um, in the rest of the book, so I don't want to comment just yet. Um too much on that but yeah I just like to make a mental note that this is the first time we've seen a female presence in the pages of start with why yeah and we should give credit where credit's due and actually give Mm -hmm. some a play to that story as well it's an amazing story so she is the first woman in the history of the air force to command the 552nd air controlled wing out of the tinker air force base one of the largest wings in the air combat command She is the first commander of a combat wing ever who didn't come up through the pilot ranks. She was the first female weapons school instructor to teach at the Air Force Fighter Weapons School, where the Air Force trains all its top guns. There she became the most celebrated teacher in the ranks, winning best teacher seven classes in in a row. She is the first female director of the Secretary of the Air Force and Chief of Staff of the Air Force Executive Action Group. I mean, that's a lot of firsts. That's, that is amazing. Yeah, she's an amazing, it's an amazing example too. He, I know that Cynic likes to use military examples quite a bit, so I'm sure more mm. will come up towards the end of the, the book. But um, Yeah, and he says that actually. He says, I use the military because it exaggerates the point. Trust matters. Trust comes from being a part of a culture or organization with a common set of values and beliefs. Yeah, I think that it is important that we note that. I hope that by the end he gives some more examples and hopefully that was just uh, a reflection of the time that business has now become, 
you know, we're not talking the fifties either. We're talking mm. early two thousands. So it really shouldn't, it should, there's definitely were more women in leadership positions. So hopefully we put a pin in that and hopefully by the end of the book, he will have given us more examples, but I think that's a good point you make. In this part of the book club, we use a reading structure called Thought Leadership Analysis. Now, Katie is actually responsible for developing this technique. It's a way of deciding whether a piece of text really qualifies as thought leadership material or not. Now, there is a lot of material out there, obviously, claiming to be worthy of this term. But according to our practice, thought leadership is something that causes us to do something, to stop doing something, or to change something. So, Katie, I trust you have chosen a passage from this part of the book? Yes, I have, Angelie. Are you prepared? I am prepared. All right. So go ahead and close your eyes and think about yourself as a leader. Okay. Here we go. No risks would mean no exploration, no experimentation, and no advancement of the society as a whole. That's a remarkable concept. Only when individuals can trust the culture or organization will they take personal risks in order to advance that culture or organization as a whole. For no other reason than, in the end, it's good for their own personal health and survival. Shall I read it again? Yes, please. Okay. No risks would mean no exploration, no experimentation, and no advancement of the society as a whole. That's a remarkable concept. Only when individuals can trust the culture or organization will they take personal risks in order to advance that culture or organization as a whole. For no other reason than, in the end, it's good for their own personal health and survival. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good bit. Juicy bit. I remember that bit. It's it's from the part where he's talking about, um, he talks about a trapeze artist, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, who would need a safety net before they attempted a new stunt. Um, and in the same way, before we attempt anything new in the business world, we want to know that there is something that would catch us if we mm-hmm. fall and if we fail. Exactly. Mm. I think what it brings to mind for me. Um, I mean, I know I always come back to this, but it was such a a monumental decision in my life um, when I changed careers. And that was a huge risk. It was was putting everything on the line um, to go into something that, I mean, I had no idea. I had no idea if it was going to work out. Um, And this sense of exploration. I love that term. I I love that in order to explore, we have to take a risk. And so stepping away from medicine, stepping away from the, the safety and the hierarchy, high, hierarchy of medicine meant that then I had to explore a whole new world, you know, a non-clinical world. Um, and although that was exciting in some ways, there is a risk involved in that. You know, you are you're challenging yourself in so many different ways. You're, you're learning so many different things and you don't have a direction while you're exploring. Like, I think that's the kind of definition of exploration is that you don't have a set 
place you're going to go. You know, you're just looking around. Mm-hmm. I think that can be a frightening place to be um, mm-hmm. because I think we want that certainty as, as humans. We want to know where we're going. But in order to know where we're going, sometimes we have to accept that that will come in time and just trust the process. Yeah. No one wants to risk anything without having some sort, some form of security in some way or another, whether it be mm. a financial for some maybe, or it be emotional for others. But to just take a leap of faith is, is probably, I would assume, pretty hard for most people mm-hmm. without having a sense of some safety. Yeah. Some, I mean, it's everyone risks something. Yeah. One of the things I'm kind of grappling with is this idea that in order to take risks, we have to have a safety net. I do think that is, I mean, it's logical. I, I can see where that argument is coming from. But is there an element of in order to take risks, we have to recognise that not taking a risk would be worse? You know, like... I mean, there is there is that element of experimenting when there's nothing to lose, mm-hmm. you know, in some way or very like you're not going to die. You know, if, if, there, if there's if there's not something really critical on the line, like that trapeze artist with the safety net, of course, you're going to try right. different tricks. But my question is, are we pushed to take risks when we feel like we have a safety net or are we pushed to take risks when we feel like there is no other option that the consequences of not exploring, of not trying something new would be so dire that it would be, it would not be beneficial for any of us. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think, well, I think that's going to probably depend on different personalities, how they approach that. But I think that for you, for example, you were so unhappy where you were Mm. that if you had stayed, the risk was more staying than leaving at some level exactly because you knew you would be but I think if you think of of let's give an example of when I was working at the company where Angelie and I met I was the marketing and communications director and then Angelie came on our team and things were switching constantly and things were things at the beginning were really rough because we were going through a business transformation, a business model transformation, and people were trying to figure out where they stood. Mm-hmm. I think our um, our leader, who at that time was Chris, who we've talked a lot about, was trying to figure out how to get and bring together different cultures within the group in terms of ways of working. We were a lot remote. We were some not remote. Some were from smaller towns. Some were from big cities. There was a lot of things happening. And for me, it felt like I wanted to take a lot of risks to push us forward, mm-hmm. but there was also a sense of I don't want to risk too much and to overstep. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, and then until I had that safety net, I always really played it safe. Mm, that's so interesting. We were all in a position of trying to get there quickly, and mm. if there was a sense of if you don't have the right answer, you might not be in. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, more of a fear of losing that position of being in. Mm-hmm. So going back to kind of what we started talking about, would you qualify that as thought leadership? Does it, how does it make you feel? Does it make you want to stop something, change something, or start doing something? 
I think what it's calling me to do is to, to kind of see the link between the risks that I'm taking and the the structures that allow me to make those decisions. Um, and I suppose to feel gratitude that we do live in in a culture that allows us to do this. You know, there are there are countries where perhaps as women we wouldn't have the ability to to work like this or you know have the voice that what that we have here um and it gratitude is also for our our circumstances you know our families and and the situation that we're in that you know allows us to to take this risk of of starting a business and to explore and you know all the personal and the financial and emotional and mental um kind of costs that go into that we we do have a structure around us that that is letting us do that. So I would say that this is a piece of thought leadership because it is calling me to um, to appreciate those things in my life and to be grateful. What about you? It's not a new concept for me, but it it does kind of push me to continue wanting to make that connection. Mm-hmm. You know, that we talk a lot about empathetic leadership And Mm -hmm. I think a part of that is creating that safety net. Obviously, a big part of that is creating that safety net to give your teams the freedom to feel safe so they can take risks. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably just something it's it's pushed me to think a bit about that and how maybe we incorporate that a bit more into what we do with our clients. And it correlates. I think every time you can make a correlation between good business practices that also result in good ROI – it's really important. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't just fluff. It's not just about giving people a sense of being, but it also actually connects to businesses performing well. Mm-hmm. So now we turn to you, our listeners. It would be great to know whether this passage called you to anything in your own work, whether you agree that it was thought leadership, and also what do you think about the practice of thought leadership analysis? Do you perhaps have a different idea from us of what constitutes thought leadership? We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please send us a voicemail or an email to bossversusbook at gmail.com. Great, moving on. Now, as always, we need to decide how we practically apply the advice in this part of the book to our business. Last time, we set ourselves the goals of getting feedback from our community about the podcast. Yes, we wanted to find out what people thought about it in general, and more specifically, whether they felt like they really could be a part of our book club. So we asked lots of people uh, for their opinions. Um, And the first bit of feedback we got was from the famous Chris Hafner, of course. Seeing as he was the inspiration uh, for a lot of what we do on this podcast, um, it seemed only right that we got his feedback first. So he said he really liked it. and He liked the way that we're criticising the text as well as learning from it. We also asked a friend, colleague and former classmate of my own, Stephen Colvin, who is the founder and CEO of Bobello, to give us some feedback. And he gave us great feedback, including feedback about the music volume. So you'll hear we've turned it down in the last couple of episodes. He asked us to engage more with our audience, which seems like an obvious thing. Yeah, I I don't know why we didn't do that before, but on some level, it's a confidence thing. Like, will anyone actually get in touch with us? Will anyone actually listen to us? (laughs) But I think it's time to stop doubting ourselves. So as you've heard in this episode... We've been trying to engage you, the listener, a little bit more. That's right. Stephen also asked us to talk 
a bit more about our why for this podcast, which again also seemed a bit obvious and we're not sure why we didn't get into that more. (laughs) We've talked a little bit about our reasons already, but since it's so pertinent to this book, we've decided to do a bonus episode to take a deeper dive into it. Clearly, it's something that we need to take more time to discuss and to share with all of you. Yeah. We also got some great feedback from a connection and friend of Angelie's. Yep. Uh, so Mariam Trebuck is the co-founder of Plus Baby, um, which is this incredible platform that is designed to help professional parents um, get back into the working environment once they've had children. Um, and Mariam said that this podcast actually inspired her to buy the book. So she's going to read Start With Why alongside us, which is really exciting. Um, we also got some feedback from Hannah Kaji, friend of the podcast, and also my very best friend. So her feedback was really important to us, uh, to me. Uh, she really liked the way that we asked questions because it invited her to think about them as well as come up with her own ideas. She also thought that slightly longer pauses would be good to allow for some thinking space. So we're taking that into account as well. We also reached out to Anthony Burr, who is another friend of the podcast and PR genius, and he said he loved it. So we are very grateful for that. We also spoke with Kizina Kwacha, fellow podcaster and host of Kizzy's Friday Game Changers. He too said he loved it. As we mentioned earlier on in the podcast, we sat down with Kizzy on his podcast and chatted with him about all things Boss versus Book, as well as our newly launched company. If you loved it, leave a review and let Kizzy know on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We also want to thank another friend of the podcast and another one of my best friends, Sejal Patel, for being our very first follower on Instagram. Yay! (laughs) Sejal, thank you so much for kicking off our social media and for all our listeners out there, come and join her and follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Boss vs Book. As an added incentive, we will give a shout out to all of our new followers in a future episode. All right, so let's move on to this chapter. Angelie, what goal shall we set for ourselves this time around? Okay, so I've been thinking a lot about the goal that we we should set ourselves uh, this time. Um, Hi guys, this is editing Anjali and editing Katie cutting in. So we had a really difficult time coming up with a goal this week and we were dithering about it for ages, right Katie? That's very true, I felt the pressure. Yeah, we felt a bit contrived and and then we ended up talking to a really good friend of ours, Ravi Joshi, who is an expert in change management and a bit of what I would call a business philosopher. And as well as having some great feedback on the podcast, he made this really pithy point. He said, you don't always have to set a goal. Yes, of course, goals can be a good thing. And of course, we live in a culture that always demands us to be driving towards something. But sometimes, he said, the best and the wisest thing to do is to just sit with the ideas, to sit with the text, let ourselves process those concepts over time. Um, Because otherwise, as Katie said, it does become pressured. And then you set goals just for the sake of setting them, which, you know, then becomes inauthentic. Absolutely. Which is something that I think that we knew in the moment, but we were still pushing ourselves to try and come up with that Mm, predetermined notion of our goal. No? Yeah, we yeah. thought this was an incre- this was incredibly wise. So we've decided that we won't force ourselves to set a goal in every episode. If a goal emerges to us, that's great. But if it doesn't, no sweat. We've also been reflecting on why we needed that external validation from Ravi um, in order to let ourselves make that decision. Because you know, as you said, Katie, we knew we had that feeling that we weren't being completely authentic in in trying to force ourselves to set this goal, um, and yet. 
we still needed Robbie to tell us that it was okay uh, mm-hmm. to, to stop doing that, right? I think we were too worried about sticking to a script. And if we had promised one thing the week before that we should probably continue to follow with that, even when it felt in the moment a bit difficult to come up with. So as he says, and as we knew before he said it, but needed him to say it, sometimes it's better to just sit with the text and eventually maybe something more will come out of it, but not, and we don't always have to set that goal in the moment. Mm, yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a, a brilliant takeaway for us. Um, so thank you so much, Ravi. And thanks guys for listening into our little interjection. Now let's get back to the podcast. It was so good to get all that feedback from all our friends and colleagues. So thank you so much, everyone, for your help. Okay, so we've come to the end of our book club meeting. Join us next time when we'll be moving on to part four of the book, which is called How to Rally Those Who Believe. You've been listening to Boss vs. Book with me, Kate Romero-Finger. And me, Anjali Pereira. This podcast is brought to you by Sinsfera. It is produced and edited by Anjali Pereira and Kate Romero-Finger. And our music is by Gaio. A huge thank you to friends of the podcast, Stefan Romero, Rob Harburn, Antonio Pinto, Hannah Kaji, Sejah Patel, Anthony Burr, Rebecca Johnson, Vanessa Quinlan, and of course, the trustworthy Chris Hafner. Have a great week, and remember, no business story is linear, so join us in the glorious muddle. Katie did the credits. <laughs> <laughs> oh.